Let's pray and then we'll dismiss the children. Father, I thank you for the love that you've shown us through your son. I thank you that you have the power to save. I thank you that you've revealed yourself to us. I thank you, Father God, that we have opportunity as the body of Christ to build one another up, to glorify you, and to see you to work wonders amongst us. Father, thank you for the time we have this morning. I ask that you would be downstairs with the children, that they would be filled with the truth, that they would learn to discern truth. And that, Father God, you would be with the adults and the helpers, that they would be passionate about teaching the next generation about the wonders of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for this time that we can glorify you. In Christ's name, amen. Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. This is the first Sunday with our, our new schedule, and, and so far it seems to be going oh well, uh, okay. Uh, this is also the first Sunday of a new series. We're focusing on the attributes of God as they are represented by the, the names used in Scripture for God. And, and names are pretty important, but, but really, you know, what's, what's in a name? The... If you study this out, there's a whole lot that I read this week about names, and it was interesting. Names have always been used to distinguish one person from another. You know, if we all had the the same name or if we didn't have any names, we wouldn't know who anybody was. We'd have to just go on looks. That could be dangerous. Surnames, what we also call last names, are actually relatively new in human history. Surnames began to be important, especially as the societies needed to have more accurate census information. This also kind of happened at the same time as populations grew and people were moving about more often. The, the surname became more and more important. Names help us to more clearly understand who we're associating with or talking with. That's how we use them. These things we call last names, they weren't common in in Europe until sometime in the Middle Ages. And the surnames that we, most of us, know and have been around usually developed from several, several areas. Family history, characteristics of a person, an occupation of a person, or the person's place of birth. So, here's some examples. My last name is Williamson. So that came from son of William. That always begs the question, so who was William? (laughs) Well, we don't know. 
An example of a characteristic last name would be the family name Short. So I could fit into that family too. I could be William the Short. The idea being that that family name, that everybody in that family was short. Occupation names, some familiar ones would be Wright, a person who is a craftsman or, or carpenter, and sometimes that's associated with uh, men and craftsmen that made wagons and, and wheels, but primarily the history there is craftsmen and carpentry. Smith, blacksmith, somebody who works with metal. Surnames were also developed because of where a person was born. And this is very frequently seen in Scripture. I was born in Greeley, fourth generation born in Greeley. So I could have the name Bill Greeley. And you'd all go, what? So I could be Bill the Short Greeley. Anyway. Names have some significance, and they especially have significance in Scripture. Names mean something, and and sometimes we get hung up with some of why all the names. Usually in the Old Testament, names went beyond just the purpose of identity. And they explained or communicated some characteristic or occupation, and sometimes God messed with those names for a specific purpose as His plan unfolded. This brings us to this idea of God's names because God is eternal. He's also spirit and he is outside of creation. And because of those three things, he has to reveal himself to humans. We're created by him. He's got to reveal himself to us. And there are two principal ways that God reveals himself. One of those is general revelation, and the other is special revelation. This we've talked about before, but this is an important theological concept for us. You find this often in Scripture. You'll see these two ways that God reveals himself. General revelation, we understand as something about God, mostly because of creation around us. That's the most common general revelation. We know that God exists because of what we see around us. We understand this from Scripture in places like Psalms 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Wow, I mean, that's, we, we stand out at night. I, I've done this many times up in the mountains. Uh, I remember doing it, it was, it was about 11,600 feet on the side of a mountain, I was camping up there with a bunch of kids, and I'm up all night anyway. And I'm standing there, I'm looking, and it is so amazing what God has placed in the heavens. You can't deny who God is, proclaims his handiwork. Paul uses this same idea in Romans 1.20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. His point is, if you see creation, you have no excuse to say God doesn't exist. That's general revelation. Everyone has that. Special revelation gives us more detail about God. 
more detail as he chose to reveal himself. And the way he revealed himself is through, and we just finished the series on this, on mir- in miracles. Special revelation uh, of God includes physical appearances of God, dreams, visions, and the written word of God. But most importantly, and the, and the greatest example of special revelation is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is the epitome of special revelation. He's the ultimate form of special revelation. Now, the Bible records these revelations, and that means that the Bible, which is, is also special revelation, that is our best source for knowing Jesus. It's our best source of knowing God. The Bible is, as a, as a form of special revelation, our source for accurate truthful understanding of who God is and what he's like. The Bible uses several names that are interpreted God. Our language is very limited in some ways. Two of the best examples, I think, from Scripture are God and love. We have one word for love. The Greeks have five, I think. The Bible has at least three that they use. Okay, we have one. So I can love Pepsi, which I do, and I can love my wife, which I do. But that's not the same kind of love. At least, right? I mean, hopefully. <laughs> God is the same, okay? So, so how we understand God has to do with these names. It's very important to us. Most of the names that we're going to look at, as a matter of fact, I think all of them in this series, are how God reveals himself in the Old Testament. And they communicate truths about God's character, his attributes, character and attributes. They kind of go together. Attributes are qualities or features regarded as an inherent part of someone. The attributes of God describe specific details about God. I don't know about you, but I'd really like to know the specifics about who I worship. There's some other ways that we see this use of names being associated with characteristics and attributes. A favorite example of mine would be from Isaiah. Isaiah's prophesying about the Messiah, and he gives a list in Isaiah 9, 6, 6 he, he's prophesying the, that the Messiah would be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's talking about the Messiah. So he is, he's not actually listing names, even though we could say that Jesus' name is Prince of Peace. We could do that. But he's actually not doing that. What he's doing is he's giving an overview of the Messiah's character. And he's using those terms. This is the way the Bible very often uses names, especially names for God. And I believe that understanding the names of God and deepening our understanding of those names and the related attributes that go with those names deepens our reverence for God. We really know who he is. This increases our confidence in God's justice. And it encourages us to be obedient to him 
and to have rest in him. It's a lot easier to have rest in God if you really know what the character of God is. A clearer understanding of God's attributes strengthens our faith and increases our passion for worship because we see how magnificent and glorious he really is. So let's begin this series at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The beginning in that verse, the word beginning, is not the beginning of God. It's the beginning of what God created. Remember, the Bible clearly teaches us that God, God didn't have a beginning. You can't say, well, he began at a certain point. God never, he didn't have a beginning. He's eternal. Uh, Psalms 90 verse 2 helps us with this. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From everlasting to everlasting. God has always existed. So in this first verse of the Bible... Beginning is the beginning of time as we understand it. We also know that this, we have to view it this way because God existed before creation. He created it. If he created it out of nothing, he had to exist before that. Makes sense? Verse 1, God created. God created. In this verse, God is from the Hebrew Elohim. Elohim emphasizes these characteristics. God's sovereignty, majesty, and unlimited power. So when this word is used, Elohim is used throughout Scripture, that's what's underneath its meaning. Sovereignty, majesty, and unlimited power. Elohim is usually translated into English as God. There's a lot there when we see that word God then, isn't there? We read of the power of Elohim in Genesis as he creates the universe and and as he creates us. This is the all-powerful creator and sustainer of creation. He's also the supreme judge of all creation. Elohim is... Is, is written in the masculine plural form of Hebrew. It comes from the noun Elo, which means God. And in the Hebrew, that would also be mighty and strong. So this would be the, the God who is mighty and strong. And the suffix I am, im, in Hebrew indicates that it's in the plural. So you have a masculine noun that's plural. It's interesting. Does that plural imply polytheism? And everybody's going, no, don't go there, don't go there, that's wrong. Polytheism doesn't work with the rest of the Bible, right? The Bible strongly teaches that there is only one God. A familiar place that we go to teach that is Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God. No other God exists. I think about this in my trips to India, and I, we went to various places and we'd see these different temples. And there's three million gods you could worship in Hinduism or more. 
And you're thinking, they call them gods. They're not. There is only one God. Anything other than Elohim that is worshipped is an idol and horrendously offensive to Elohim. Where I go with this is that I, I really believe that the plural form of Elohim points to the Trinity. Some scholars don't always go there the, the same way I do, but there's a lot that do. The overall teaching of Scripture is that there is only one God, and that one God exists in three distinct persons. The mystery of the Trinity is hinted at throughout the Old Testament, and it becomes more vivid to us in the New Testament. It's developed more. And one of those places that it becomes clearer in the New Testament is when Jesus was baptized. So Jesus has come to John in the wilderness, and he's going to be baptized. And we see here the three persons of Elohim, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Matthew three sixteen and 17. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice said from heaven, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Three persons, one God. In my studying, there are several sources that define Elohim as the name usually given to the three persons of the Trinity. Elohim is a plural in unity. It's plurality with, with a unified idea. God at the beginning of creation is Elohim. What that implies in that first verse of Genesis is all three Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created the universe. The first sentence of the Bible gives us one of the finest definitions of Elohim. How does it do that? It does that by stating His incredible, awesome power. And we see that power in creation. He created the universe. How did He create the universe? He spoke. And, and I, I always think of this in terms of, you know, if, if I was going to do that, I'd, I'd scream it. You know, let there be light! And, you know, boom. His power is greater than that. He just goes, let there be light. Poof. And there was light. Awesome, incredible, indescribable power. Elohim. Powerful enough to create with only the breath of his words. Elohim. Elohim is very associated with that kind of power and associated with creation. The word occurs 2,600 times in the Old Testament. And it commonly designates the one true creator of the universe, God, Elohim. When you look at where this word is used, we exist because of Elohim. Genesis 5.1. This is the book of the generations of Adam when God, Elohim, when Elohim created man, he made him in the likeness of Elohim. The Bible also refers to Elohim as king. Psalms 47.7 and 8. For Elohim is the king of all the earth, 
Sing praises with a psalm. Elohim reigns over the nations. Elohim sits on his holy throne. He is king. No one's greater than him. His power is evident in his holiness and, and his perfect ability to judge. So he has this power and it's all caught up in his holiness and his, his ability to judge. Psalms 50 verse 1. The mighty one, Elohim, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, Elohim, shines forth. Our Elohim comes forth. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for Elohim himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify, testify against you. I am Elohim, your Elohim. I am your God of unbelievable power and might. Your God of unimaginable power and might. Elohim's awesome power is also seen in the ability to save the worst sinner who believes in the work of Jesus. We even see this in the Old Testament. Hosea 13.4 But I am the Lord your Elohim. From the land of Egypt, you know no Elohim but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. Even with all that unmeasurable power, Elohim is compassionate. Deuteronomy 4.31, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. This incredibly powerful God, the ultimate in power, is also gracious. Psalms 116.5, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our Elohim is merciful. And Elohim is faithful. That's another one of the characteristics of Elohim. He's faithful to his covenant. Deuteronomy 7.9, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God, Elohim, always is faithful. It's interesting that this name, Elohim, is what Jesus cried out from the cross. Do you remember? Here we are, Mark chapter 15, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God. Wait, which means, my Elohim, my Elohim, why have you forsaken me? Now, why did this take place? Why did Jesus do this? Why is he calling out to, to Elohim? The reason is because of the perfection of Elohim. He, Elohim could not look upon sin. Habakkuk tells us that the eyes of God, the eyes are too pure to approve evil, and thou cannot look on wickedness with favor. 
It's from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. Elohim can't even look at wickedness. So on the cross, the Father forsook the Son because the Son took human sin upon Himself. I think we need to be reminded of this from time to time. I don't think it's something we should ever forget. Listen to these passages. Jesus took on our sin. This is a part of the power of Elohim. 1 Corinthians 15.3 For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sakes he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. 1 John 4.10, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is Elohim. Jesus Christ not only bore man's sins, but actually became sin on man's behalf, on our behalf, in order that those who believe in him might be saved from the penalty of their sin. Who can do that? Only Elohim has the power to do that. Only Elohim has the power to become human. He's the only one who has the power and the ability to take on human form, live a perfect life, become the perfect sacrifice, taking all human sin upon himself in order to save a lost sinner. This is all tied to this this name, Elohim. Power and might and majesty. Yeah, in in Genesis we see it. Elohim is associated with creation. We see it with humans being created in Genesis 5.1. Elohim and creation, they go together. Awesome, indescribable power. But that same power of Elohim continues as sinners are made new creatures in Christ. That's what Paul gets in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. That's power. Only Elohim has the power to save. If you're here and you have not accepted Christ, let the power of Elohim transform you.
by accepting the work of Jesus. He has the power. Elohim has the power to save. Father, thank you. Elohim, thank you for your power and your majesty. Thank you that we can look to you and that we see in you this incredible power and majesty and awesomeness that that is difficult for us to put into human language. Elohim, the power to save, the power to recreate, the power to transform. Thank you, Father, that your son went to the cross, took on sin, that we would have access, that we would be able to see clearly Elohim, the ruler, creator of the universe. Amen.